0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of First Samuel again. We're continuing our way uh, through First Samuel. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to, to chapter 19. That's going to be our text uh, text for this morning and uh, this morning, um, we're going to see a theme that has really been with us from First uh, Samuel chapter 16, and, and will last through the end of the book, and that is this contrast between Saul and David. And we've, we've seen this before, we'll see it again. Uh, we have the ascension of David. David is the Lord's chosen king, and, and he's faithful in pretty much everything that he does. And then on the other hand, we have Saul, this king who has rejected the Lord, and in response, God rejects him as well. And that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, and it's certainly true this morning. Saul is given every chance to repent, every chance to return to the Lord, to to cling to the Lord's anointed, to, to submit to God and his plan, and instead of all that, he instead decides to cling stubbornly to his throne. Last week, if you were with us, we saw this powerful contrast, not so much between Saul and David, but between Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son. Two different ways that are before us, two different paths before us of how we will respond to the Lord's chosen king. You see, just like Saul, Jonathan, his son, lost the kingdom, but it wasn't because of his own doing. Jonathan faithfully follows the Lord, and yet, as a part of God's plan, Jonathan is not the Lord's chosen king. Jonathan, instead, gives up his throne, gives up his kingdom, and gives up his future for the sake of something better. For the sake of God's kingdom and a future in God's plan. And the same thing faces each and every one of us. That just like Jonathan, just like Saul, we have to respond to the Lord's chosen king. It's not David anymore, now it is Jesus. How will we respond to Jesus, the Lord's chosen king? Will we do everything we can to remain firmly seated on the throne of our lives, refusing to listen to God or his kingdom? Or will we, Jonathan, choose the costly way of submission to the way of Jesus. Now, this morning's passage picks up where we left off last week, and what we're going to see is, again, this contrast between David and Saul, and it shows us clearly how God is taking care of his chosen king. In spite of Saul's best efforts to kill David, God is there. God is caring for David. And that's really the, the structure of this morning's passage, chapter 19 of 1 Samuel contains four different stories that are very different from one another, but four stories that show us how God takes care of his people, how God delivers his people specifically in the life of David. We'll go ahead and look at each one this morning, but before we do that, I just want to point out that there are a couple parts of this morning's passage that, that raise some questions, especially once we get into verses 11 through 17, and we look at Michael, the, the daughter of, of Saul. There's some, some things that she does that, that raise a lot of questions, and, and these are are, are questions worth considering? Why, what should we make of the fact that, that Michael outright lies to Saul's uh, messengers, outright lies to Saul, um, that there's this idol in the house of, of David and Michael? Good, important questions, but I think a lot of times focusing on those questions and, and spending time wrestling through those can distract from the main point, the main focus that God wants to communicate to his people through this passage. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to be laser focused on what God is communicating, not just to to the people who had 1 Samuel originally thousands of years ago, but to us. What is God trying to communicate to you through this passage? What is God trying to tell you about your life and how he can deliver you, how he is with you how he's caring for you in the midst of trials and afflictions. And so we're not going to spend time looking at some of these questions because we're just going to be focused on what the Spirit is saying to us through this passage. Let's go ahead and ask for God to be with us this morning. Pray for his blessing upon reading his word. Let's, let's pray. Lord, uh, it, is, it is indeed our prayer that you would come, that you would speak to us We thank you, God, that your word is living and active. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you still speak today. And I ask that as we consider this chapter this morning, that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. God, we ask that you would give us hearts that are not only able to hear, but also to respond to your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so First Samuel chapter 18, where we left off last week, we saw that Saul was privately scheming to put David to death. He had, he had a couple different plans on how he was going to kill David. He was going to use the Philistines, so that way his hands remain clean. That doesn't work out for him, and so by the time we get to chapter 19, some time has passed. We don't know how much time, but by the time chapter 19 comes to us, he's ready to take his plan public. And so he brings this plan to his counselors and to his son, Jonathan. And that's what we see in the first seven verses. Let's start with verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But to Jonathan, Saul's son, or, excuse me, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Remember what we saw last week. Everywhere David goes, he is met with success. First Samuel chapter 18, even Saul has to acknowledge multiple times that, that David is this fearsome foe. He's a, he's a troubling enemy because the Lord is with him. And so Saul, in, in his messed up way of thinking, reasons that, well, if David has God on his side, I'm going to need some people on my side as well. And so he decides to run to his counselors, to his servants, and said, hey, I need your help to go ahead and help me put David to death. And verse 1 tells us of this tension that Jonathan finds himself in. And as we read the rest of these verses here in verses uh, 1 through 7, notice how many times the text refers to Jonathan as Saul's son. Notice how many times the text and Jonathan in his own words refers to Saul as his father. And I think that that's intentional because the, the narrator is communicating something to us, reminding us of this tension that Jonathan finds himself in. We're brought into the very heart of Jonathan. It's a heart that is in conflict. On the one hand, he is submitted to David. He loves David. He knows that David is the chosen king. At the beginning of chapter 18, he actually abdicates the throne by taking off his royal robe and giving it to David. And yet at the same time, Jonathan still loves his dad, still wants to to care for his dad. He has aligned his life with the Lord, and yet he knows that his dad hasn't, and he wants, he longs for his dad to join him in following the Lord and following the Lord's plan. And maybe you find yourself in a similar situation where you're in this tension between choosing between your allegiance to Jesus and and between allegiance to your family. And and maybe Jonathan's tension is something that you can resonate deeply with. This love for Jesus, a love for family, sometimes can be in conflict. How does Jonathan respond? Well, that's what we see in verse 2. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So here we see that Jonathan, in spite of his love for his father, he's thrown his lot in with David with the Lord's anointed. He becomes aware of this plot from his father to kill David. And so he informs David immediately. He says, David, go and hide, and the moment I have more information, I'll come and I will tell you what I can find out. Verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan's words here are very powerful, and it's not just because they're a, a winsome, persuasive argument that, that it actually results in a response from, from Saul. Jonathan, as we've seen time and time and time again in the book of 1 Samuel, he's someone who injects the, the perspective of God into a situation. He doesn't just remind Saul of all of the good that David has done for God's people. He doesn't just remind Saul of of all the good that David's done for Saul. He doesn't even remind Saul only of the fact that Saul liked David at one point. Beyond all that, he, he injects the right perspective, God's perspective, into this conversation by saying, because of David, God has worked this incredible salvation for his people. Why on earth would you consider killing him when God clearly has been using him? What's more than that, Jonathan also is willing to tell his dad about the danger that is facing him. He's willing to tell Saul that his actions towards David are are plain and sinful. They're just sinful. That you're going down a path, dad, and you need to turn back before it is too late. This reference here to innocent blood that he, he mentions here, it's an important one because Jonathan knows his Bible, and he's referencing a different part of the Bible. He knows the commands of God in his law about what someone, what must happen to someone who spills innocent blood. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. It says this, if anyone hates his neighbor... And lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, you shall put him to death. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. You see what Jonathan's doing? He's he's willing to look at things from God's perspective, and he's telling his dad that God's law would require Saul himself to be put to death if he murders David. And so he says, Dad, I, I, I plead with you, turn around now before it is too late. Verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. I don't know about you, but I'm a little surprised by Saul's response here. It's not just that he begrudgingly relents here. He actually appears, David, Jonathan actually appears to reach Saul's heart because he takes this oath and says, you know what, as long as God lives, David will live. In other words, he's saying, I will never put him to death. And it seems like we at last have reconciliation, that Jonathan has won this reconciliation between his dad and between David, and David's welcome back into the family Of Saul do you see how God is at work in this moment that he's he's using Jonathan to deliver David from the hands of Saul it's it's not necessarily a miracle it's through the the faithful intervention of his friend Jonathan and over the course of this chapter we will see different ways that God rescues David from the schemes of Saul and each of these is different Each of them builds on one another, and we're given this undeniable truth that God may use different means to deliver David, but make no mistake, God is the one who is delivering his future king. And again, make no mistake, God uses different ways to care for you, care for his people, but God's care for you, his people. Is unwavering. Let's look at the second episode. The first episode, God delivers David through the faithfulness of Jonathan. Second episode, he delivers David through the flight of David. Verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. There was a, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now, some time has passed between verse 7 and verse 8. We don't know how much time, but but some time has passed. David is now, again, back in the courts of Saul. When we get to verse 8, there's this war between the Philistines and the Israelites that at last resumes. And when the war comes, David resumes his responsibilities as a commander in Saul's army. And just like what we saw last week in 1 Samuel chapter 18, David goes out and he finds success wherever he goes. Notice the verbs at the end of verse 8. It says, David struck the Philistines with a great blow and they fled before him. Those two words, struck and fled, will come up again in this passage. And so as David's success returns, so does, unfortunately, Saul's jealousy of David. And what should have been this moment of great celebration, that God again has, has delivered his people. He's worked this great salvation for Israel, like what we saw Jonathan mention in verse 5. It's instead marred by attempted murder. As Saul just can't handle it. He's, he's committed to keeping on the throne of his own life. And that overrules his commitment made by an oath in verse 6. And we've seen this play out before. We saw it last week in chapter 18. Saul is sitting in his court. He's afflicted with an evil spirit. As with before, he he sees the solution to this evil spirit not as repentance, not as returning to God, but instead as killing David. That if he can just kill David, then he will find relief. And again, he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. And just like before, David escapes. Notice the verbs that we see in verse 10. It says that Saul attacks David and he struck the wall with his spear and David fled. So, there's this contrast here between verse 8 and verse 10 between David and Saul. David is attacking, he's striking the enemies of the Lord, and they are fleeing before him. Meanwhile, we have Saul who is not striking the enemies of the Lord, he's actually striking the Lord's anointed. And the Lord's anointed is fleeing before him. And again, we see here the Lord's deliverance. This time it's through the actions of David himself. And we might be tempted to to see you know what this is this is a little silly to claim that God is the one who is at work delivering David when David is the one who actually runs away he's the he's the one who does the hard work of fleeing the hard work of, of dodging but that doesn't take in to account the providence of God the purposeful sovereignty of God That God is the one who is orchestrating all things for good. Specifically for the good of his people. And that includes David's own actions. But this way of looking at life, looking at everything through the lens of God's hand at work in your own life, in my own life, it's foreign to our culture today. I confess that all too often I need convincing that God is at work in my life in every single facet of my life. All too often I can be consumed with the promises that are the problems that are facing me that I I don't look to the promises, I don't look to the hand of God in my life. And maybe we need more convincing. And so we have a third story, the deception of Michael in verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Saul is, is furious that David has escaped him yet again, and so he decides, decides to press the advantage. And, and David, when he flees in verse 10, he runs home. See, David has experienced this before. He's, he's experienced the murderous traits of, of Saul before. He knows that there's this evil spirit afflicting him. And so probably David is just thinking, you know what, we'll just go home for a night, and then I'll return back to the court tomorrow. This will pass as well. Little does he know he will never return to the court of Saul again. So David is waiting for the morning to return home, return back to work. Saul is also waiting for the morning as well, but he's waiting to put David to death in the morning. Remember back in verse 4, Jonathan says, Let not the king sin, and he doesn't care about that anymore. No, he's he's focused on putting David to death. And somehow, David's wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, becomes aware of of Saul's plot. And so she pleads with David, you know what, flee now while you have a chance. And David listens to his wife, escapes through a a window. Imagine the humiliation for David at this moment. Imagine the disconnect that, that David is feeling here, that he is the Lord's chosen king. That God has anointed him as the king. And now he is being smuggled out of a window of his house in the middle of the night by his wife so that he can hold on to his life. And we would be remiss if we did not commend Michael as we did Jonathan earlier. Here's a woman, just like her brother Jonathan, faced with the decision, do I... Do I choose my, my father, Saul, or do I choose David? And, and the rest of the time that we see, she, she chooses David. And, and she, she throws her lot in with David, and she buys him time to escape. Verse 13. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in bed and with a pillow of goat's hair at its head, Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? I mentioned earlier that Michael's actions here raise some questions. The word image in verse 13 is a a word, teraphim, that refers to, to household idols. What on earth are idols doing in the house of David, the Lord's chosen king? We're not told why. We can safely surmise the answer isn't because David is an idolater. The rest of the book of, of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, is, is not afraid of showing us David's faults. It would clearly show us something here. Michael here lies both to Saul's messengers and to Saul himself. Is this passage advocating some sort of ends justify the means approach to lying? And I would point out that this passage is not necessarily prescriptive, telling us how we should act. Rather, it's just descriptive, saying this is what happened. In any case, don't let those questions detract from the main point of the story. Just like Jonathan, Michael has thrown her lot in with David, with the Lord's king, with the Lord himself, not with her father's failed kingdom. And God uses Michael and her actions to deliver David yet again. God continues to be at work, behind the scenes, delivering his chosen king. There's one final story in this chapter. One more time that God delivers David from the hands of Saul. This time the Lord intervenes directly, starting in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. David flees from his home. In the middle of the night, never to return, he ends up traveling to Samuel at Ramah, Samuel's hometown. I think it's significant that the text doesn't just tell us that Samuel visited, or excuse me, that David visited Samuel, it tells us that he actually lived with Samuel at Naoth. This is this formative time for David. We don't know how long he's living there with Samuel. But however long it is. He's living there, learning from the former leader of Israel, learning from the, the prophet of God's people who brought the people of God back to himself. This is a formative time for David. And can you imagine the disconnect in this moment for David? The only other time that Samuel and David meet, Samuel anointed him as God's chosen future king. And now David is a fugitive, running for his life. Can you imagine being David in this moment? Just what gives, God? What's going on? Samuel, did you make a mistake? Did God forget about me? How can I hope to reconcile this promise, this plan of God, with the reality of my messed up life? And in this moment, he pours out his concerns, and God doesn't have to, but makes explicit to David his concern for him, his commitment to him, by intervening directly in the rest of the story. Verse 19, And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Sam, and Samuel standing as, as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. At some point, Saul finds out where David is hiding. He's living with Samuel and Naoth ramah here, and no matter how much time has passed, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul's anger has not subsided, And so he sends men out to take David by force to bring him back to Gibeah. Saul will kill him himself. But then the most astounding thing happens. They come near to Naoth to, to seize David, and, and then as they draw near to Samuel and these other prophets, the spirit of God comes upon them and, and takes over, and they begin to prophesy. And, and, and we might not, not know exactly what this means, but what's clear is these messengers, they were sent to collect David. They were sent to grab David, bring him back to Saul, to put him to death, and they are stopped. By the intervention of God. That God just overcomes their faculties, their ability to operate. And this happens three times. Messengers are sent, God intervenes. More messengers are sent, God intervenes. More messengers are sent, God intervenes. After the third time, Saul resolves to go to Ramah himself. He'll kill David himself. Apparently Saul doesn't get the message. Verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? There are a number of parallels here between this account, these few verses, and what we saw back in chapter 9 and chapter 10 when Saul is anointed the king of Israel. In both passages, we see that Saul arrives in Ramah, and he's not sure where Samuel is. In both passages, we see that he stops and asks for directions to find Samuel by, while standing by a well. And in both passages, Saul is overcome by the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy, which leads to this response from the crowds where the crowds say, Is Saul also among the prophets? But there is a significant difference between the two. In in chapter 9 and chapter 10, when he becomes the king, Saul's prophesying is, is a sign of his anointing as the king of Israel. Here, however, the result is different. He is left lying before Samuel naked, probably not completely naked. But he has removed his robe... And he's lying before Samuel all day and all night. So chapter 19 ends the exact same way that chapter 18 began. Chapter 18, we remember, began with Jonathan willingly taking off his royal robe, giving it to David as a sign of abdication of the throne. Now, chapter 19, his father is forced to take off his robe as a sign that the kingdom is no longer his, but it is David. I hope you can see what this text is doing. It gives us four very different stories that are just a glimpse of the infinite number of ways that God is at work in this world. But even more than that, more than just God being at work in the world, how God is at work on behalf of his people. Pursuing the good of his people. God is not distant. God is not uninvolved in the world. He didn't just set his creation up in a certain way and and let it run its inevitable course. He's doing a million things in every single moment. He's doing them all with a purpose. He's doing them for good. Not just in David's life, but in your life two you take the words of jonathan here in in isolation and it it could be possible to to interpret them just as the winsome argument of a son to his father you take the story of david's dodge of saul's spear by itself and you can interpret that as just the speed of a young man who's able to outmaneuver someone who is twice his age You take the the story of Michael's actions here and they're just a shrewd and crafty woman if you look at them by themselves. But when you take all of them together, you begin to piece together this picture of a God who is there, a God who is here right now. It's a picture of a God who is at work, and He is at work for your good if you are His child. And if you find yourselves in trials facing you. You might not grasp what God is doing, but He is at work. Nothing is random. Nothing is outside of God's care for his people. And if that wasn't clear from the first three stories, God decides to make it explicit in the, sec- in the final story by intervening directly into the life of David. Probably my favorite part of this story is what takes place at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us that David goes and dwells with Samuel, and and we're not sure how long he stays with him. And then when we read the rest of the Bible, when we get to the the Psalms, we see that we actually have a song that David wrote during this time. as, As Saul is trying to kill him, and he has to flee his home. We have Psalm 59. Consider the introduction to Psalm 59. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mitcom of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So consider David in this moment. He's just had to escape through a window in the middle of the night because Saul is going to kill him And it's humiliating. And where does he decide to go? He's not sure. So he runs to Samuel. And while he's there living with Samuel, I can imagine that David has a whole lot of questions like, why is my life the way it is right now, God? Can you blame him? Can you blame David in this moment? Everything is looking up. He's the darling of Israel. And then, bam, the floor falls out. And everything has gone wrong. And he loses everything. We'll read later that his his wife, Michael, is actually given to someone else. And I don't know about you, but if I was in David's situation in this moment, I'd be wondering how long God, how long is this going to continue? What did I deserve? What did I do to deserve all of this? Don't you care? And then you start to read through the Psalms, you get to Psalm 59, you read that description, this mitkam, this song of of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him, and then you realize that this Psalm, Psalm 59, is a song written by David in this moment when his life is raw and miserable and uncertain, and he's still processing just how awful his life is at this moment, and how, maybe if, God is actually going to come through. How does God fit? Does God fit into all of the mess that is my life? You see, 1 Samuel 19 gives us this picture from the outside, from a distance, showing us how God is at work. And we we have the benefit of standing outside and looking in from a distance to see, yeah, God is at work. God is doing something in David's life. But Psalm 59 shows us what things were like in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the trials, in the middle of the suffering. It's not writ- written in this matter-of-fact style that we have in, in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. It's, it's just written by a man who is in pain, and his life has crumbled all around him. He has no idea what tomorrow will bring. And you look at Psalm 59 and you notice it, it breaks apart really into three distinct parts. First, David just cries out to God. Calls out, cries out to God for deliverance, for, for vindication. That's what verses 1 through 7 of, of Psalm 59 are about. That's what verses eight or 11 through 15 are about. David's life is a wreck and he's just crying out, God, can you do something for me? I need you to come through for me. I need you to show up. And he asked God to vindicate him in this moment. He says, God, I, I, I need you to not just show up. I need you to show up in a way that, that proves that, that the wrong I'm experiencing is not because of something I've done. That I suffered unjustly. But God doesn't, uh, David doesn't just cry out to God for deliverance. He's also very clear about his trust in God in this moment. That's verses 8 through 10. Let's go ahead and read these. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God is my, in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. See, David is, is aware that just because God hasn't intervened doesn't mean that God won't. Doesn't mean that God can't. David doesn't let his circumstances make him doubt the character of who God is. Let me say that again. David finds himself in this moment, and yet, as he's crying out for God's deliverance, he never allows him circ- his circumstances to, to make him doubt the character of God. In fact, as he's crying out, that's the basis for his cry for deliverance. It's, it's who God is. He can ask God to deliver him because that's the type of God that he is. And though his life doesn't line up with what he expected it to be, with what God has promised to him, he still expresses this confidence in God that God will end his affliction. And then we turn to the end of Psalm 59. I love how powerful the ending of Psalm 59 is. This trial isn't over for David. We're not to the end of of chapter 19 yet. We're We're a long way from 2 Samuel chapter 2 when David finally becomes the king over Judah. And so he's in the middle of suffering. He doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring and yet he still says this at the end of Psalm 59. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David ends this psalm by rejoicing in the Lord's past deliverance while trusting God for future ultimate deliverance. I think this psalm is instructive for us because when we consider it in conjunction with the events of 1 Samuel chapter 19, we're given a glimpse of how we might also respond when we're faced with life's afflictions and life's trials and hardships. Your circumstances are undoubtedly different than those of David. But you know what's not different? It's the God who delivers. The same God of 1 Samuel 19 is your God today. Your trials may come for standing for righteousness or the sake of the gospel. The New Testament makes it very clear that sometimes suffering is a part and parcel of the Christian life because of the Christian life. And in those times, Psalm 59, 1 Samuel 19 are are crucial for us to grasp. Sometimes trials and hardship comes not because, necessarily, of the good that we are doing, but just because of the sinfulness of other people. That's the issue for David here, isn't it? David is not primarily suffering because he's doing good, even though he does good. It's just because of the sinfulness of Saul. And, and if you find yourself in that type of situation that, through no fault of your own, you're facing hardship and pain. And this heart-wrenching circumstance, and it's because of the the wickedness of other people in those times cling to the message of 1 Samuel 19 and Psalm 59. And sometimes our hardships, our trials, they're not caused by the sin of other people. They're not caused because of a commitment to the gospel. They're just a part of living in a broken world. That's what Paul actually has in mind in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the creation groaning. We live in this broken world and that means that you are going to face pain. You are going to face failure. You are going to face impossible circumstances. Sometimes you may even face death itself. And in those times, we must cling to the message of Psalm 59 and 1 Samuel chapter 19. Your trials will be different, but the God who is with you is not. This text is reminding us in story after story after story after story that you can be sure of this, that the God who preserved David will preserve you through life's trials. The God who preserved David will preserve you in the trials of your life. There's a promise here in this chapter that you can stake your life on. This God who preserved David, this God who delivers, he's with you too. When we find ourselves in in the midst of trials, it can be hard. It It can seem impossible to lift our eyes from the affliction, from the pain, the suffering, the trials before us, and look to the God who delivers. Our circumstances may seem overwhelming. They may seem insurmountable. In those moments, let David be your guide. David, who looks to the Lord, who trusts in the Lord. The God who preserved David will preserve you through all the trials you face. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God, And we confess that many times the reality of our lives don't match up with those promises that you have made. God, I pray that in that disconnect it would not be something that causes us to to lose hope, to be discouraged, but instead we would follow the example of David that we would look to you that we would trust in you, that we would cry out for deliverance while looking to how faithful you have been to us. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.